Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, Lindsay Boylan is back. She returns to the show. She was on Friends Like Us before her run for the Democratic nomination for the U.S. House of Representatives in New York's 10th District in the 2020 election. She also previously served as Deputy Secretary for Economic Development and Housing, as well as Special Advisor to New York's, yes, Governor Andrew Cuomo. Lindsay is currently a full-time Democratic candidate running for Manhattan Borough President. Her platform includes solutions for issues regarding the extreme inequality her borough is facing, a bold plan to increase affordable housing and support for expanded open spaces to make Manhattan more secure, vibrant, and livable. Check out Lindsay Boylan at lindsayfordnewyork.com. Also welcome to the show, new guest, Tremaine S. Wright. Tremaine is an attorney, entrepreneur, small business owner, and activist who is a second-generation Bedford-Stuy resident invested in preserving the rich legacy of her community and building a strong foundation for the future. She was elected to the New York State Assembly on November 8, 2016 to serve the 56th Assembly District of Brooklyn, which represents Bed-Stuy and Northern Crown Heights. As the former chairwoman of Community Board 3, Tremaine fostered long-standing relationships with past and current elected officials, community leaders, and a cross-section of local residents committed to improving Central Brooklyn. Tremaine still lives on the same block where her grandparents raised their family. She's dedicated her career to empowering and creating opportunities for her neighbors and her community. Welcome back to the show, C. Sawadi Morris. Zawadi is an award-winning journalist who in 2013 launched the Brooklyn Reader, an online news source covering the neighborhoods of central Brooklyn. In 2020, she launched its non-profit sister site, Scribe, that's S-C-R-I-I-B-E.org, a collaborative news source for investigative local journalism. Ms. Morris is also the executive producer of the COVID-19 Writers Project. We are now a part of the Be Frank Network. You like that incredible sound? You do. Well, to be frank, that's the Be Frank Network. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists, like Oprah Magazine rating us as a podcast that every woman should hear. We thank everyone, of course. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast, and Twitter is friendslikeus10. Leave us a tip or donation by going to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. We now have t-shirts and face masks available with the new logo on it. Go to marinafranklin.com to purchase yours today or go to our Instagram and hit that link tree in our bio. And with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way. Most important, tell someone you know to check us out and wash those dirty little hands. Wear your mask. Oh, yes. Have a safe and happy, relatively happy holiday. So I want to welcome you to Friends Like Us. Um, This is a really great episode. You know, I have to be honest, up top, Tremaine, 
Tremaine Wright is, uh, you've been, uh, let's see, let me do this right. Look at me. This is why I'm so nervous because like, you know what it is? I'm a comedian, but every now and then I try to act like I'm this major, like investigative reporter, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with politicians, when I have them on the show, I just always want to make sure I say the right thing and I don't sound like a moron. So I apologize if I get anything wrong ahead of time. No apologies necessary. But I, when Zawadi told me about you, I was like, I want to have her on so bad because you're doing such great work in, in Brooklyn, in Bed-Stuy. You're a community activist. You also attorney, entrepreneur. And my question, though, for you, it, look at me trying to get my work together. I see Zawadi. Zawadi is enjoying this. I can see, I can see you. Because my... <laughs> I am a reporter, you know, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I know I, I, I feign it, but I kind of like that. Cause if I were, if I claimed reporter personality, oh my God, people would attack me. Yeah. So attorney, entrepreneur, small business owner, and activist who is second generation Bed-Stuy resident invested in preserving the rich legacy of her community and building a strong foundation for the future. Tell me about Bed-Stuy and what its current state is given the pandemic and everything like where is Brooklyn? Where Brooklyn at? I'm going to say Brooklyn is probably doing okay. Bed-Stuy is doing okay, but we're not thriving the way we should be. We are still seeing upticks in the virus. We're still seeing businesses struggle. Um, a lot of our children don't have tablets, and so they're having intermittent educational success because they're not able to have long-term planning going on forward with their education. But there are some glimmers of hope. I'm not trying to paint a picture of gloom and doom. We also have a number of businesses that have just opened up during this pandemic. We have new restaurants opening up, new small businesses, a new um, bakery shop that opened on DeKalb, I think it was just this week. There's still a lot of movement. Our gardens are operating. They've just drew their harvests and they're sharing the produce. So there's lots of things happening that are good in a neighborhood, but we are definitely in a period of transition. A lot of the young people that have moved into our community over the last four or five years have lost jobs. And by young, I'm talking about under 35. So I don't want to paint a picture that it's only under 24, but we're seeing a lot of people in transition. We're figuring out our next steps, but we are working together as we do this, as we move forward. So when you talk about next steps, it's gun violence, right? In Brooklyn, you know, we just found like a, a transit worker who was selling guns, right? Gun violence is not new to Bedford-Stuyvesant. It is one of the communities that has unfortunately suffered with the illegal gun trade and all of the repercussions of that illegal gun trade for decades. So while we've been able to handle and address a lot of the legal gun sale um, problems in our state, we haven't had an opportunity to really get our hands wrapped around what's going on in the underground. About four years ago, we very we had a very successful investigation that got a ton of guns off the street in the Bedford-Stuyvesant area. It was a straight attack on one of the larger, what I'm going to refer to as cliques in the neighborhood, and we were able to get them off the streets and a lot of the guns associated with them. Now, about four years later, we're also we're seeing an uptick in shootings. And I believe it's definitely related to exactly what you just described as that underground trade of um, guns that come from southern states 
into New York City, and we have a hard time getting our hands wrapped around who's doing the sales and how it's getting circulated, how those guns are circulating. So let me ask you, this is great work. And um, because I know I, I had a friend tell me or a relative, some relatives say they wanted to come to New York. And I said, not right now. It's not it, it's it's not safe. You know, like the pandemic has made situations where kids are out of school and kids are, you know, no after school programs. You may want to wait, you know, um, no, I don't think that New York is unsafe, but that's I've grown up here. I think what is the pockets of community that suffer with illicit drugs, drug trade, illicit gun sales, with poor housing conditions, with a lot of the, what I'm going to refer to is sort of all of the social determinants that sort of move people to the outskirts of our society. Those pockets of community are continuing to struggle, but they've always struggled. And the violence that we're hearing reported are uh, again, congregated in those those pockets of community. It is not widespread, but it's rarely ever widespread. Those types of crimes and these crimes happen amongst people oftentimes that know each other. These are not people who are unfamiliar with each other. Unfortunately, we have incidents like we did this past week where two of them see each other on Fulton and Tompkins and shoot the gun and end up grazing the face of a 70-year-old woman who's sitting on a bus. So yes, random acts do occur. And I never want to pretend that's not a possibility. The crime that we're talking about most frequently are crimes between people who are familiar with each other. Mm, they seem to be real familiar on my block. <laughs> I could take a guess on a number of blocks that you might uh, well, live, I live on. And... <laughs> I live on um, 117th and Frederick Douglass which when I first moved here was like, you know, biggest drug scene, as they say in America, you know, but then all the gentrification I claimed made it worse as far as like, now you have families walking around and people who, you know, the haves and the have nots are living too close together. So like my joke was, I never did the joke, but I was like, if I could see in your window what I could steal, I, I'm just, I'm gonna get a ladder and come on up. He used to say there's no violence uh, in Harlem and not on this block. But then it started when the gentrification happened. It started to be a lot of more um, robbery. And why do I sound like a white woman? <laughs> <laughs> a lot more robberies. And oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> well, I'm going to say robberies never stop. Someone called me a hypochondriac. So that's part of it. Well, I'm going to say robbery has never stopped in New York City. Rape has never stopped. Murder has never stopped. It's just whether or not you knew where it was happening. Mm. And sometimes people get very complacent because they're not on Citizen app and they didn't get the report. So they thought it didn't occur. That's right. Or it was on the news and it really did happen three blocks away from them. But because they never walk in that direction, they don't realize that it is still occurring in our neighborhoods. So it has never stopped. We've never lived in a utopia. It is, there is crime, there is violence, there are drugs. But what we also have is the um, creation of wonderful technology that now means that I don't have to do street trade. I can call for my drugs to be delivered. It means that I don't need to have Franklin Avenue littered with prostitutes waiting to sell. I create a dating app, which very often services the same way. Crime still exists. It has a new face because we do it in a different way. 
interesting. I was going to say, even when I had the coffee shop, one of my my customers came in for coffee every day, and we all knew exactly what he was doing. But he was telling us the story about how he was going onto a dating site and dating these lovely women from South Brooklyn and oh, how three of them were teaching him some Russian language and all of this stuff. And surely enough, that about a month or two later, they were busted as a drug, that was a drug ring. I'm sorry, not a drug, a prostitution ring. Wow. So it happens. It's just happening with technology. Yeah. Believe me, drugs are being delivered. It's just that now, instead of beeping somebody... <laughs> I was like, mine was delivered last week, yeah. Was it Time Out or somebody? They... They did a profile on the young white guys that were delivering weed in Williamsburg. So they celebrated that one. But the one that's on one on one sixteenth, it might not get the celebration. Right. That's right. Yeah. Because when they talk about legalizing marijuana, I think of uh, there's one place I think in Brooklyn called Canaclu. Is it Canaclusive? It might be Canaclusive. That's a very popular. I am just for the record. I'm very much supportive of legalization of marijuana. Oh, <laughs> thank goodness! And if the governor happens to be listening to your podcast, I'm waiting for him to call me to be the marijuana czar. Ah. So just to put it out in the world. Oh, okay. <laughs> I do want to ask you this: like this lockdown that Zawadi and I were both talking about, that's coming. What do you feel about that with businesses and? Because you're you had a coffee shop. Do you still have a coffee shop? No, no, it's closed now. It's closed. It's actually now a wellness center. The space is operating as a wellness center, massage therapy and acupuncture. It's called Life Wellness. Okay. Oh, D- is that yours too? Nope, it is not. So, no. what? How do you feel about these small businesses? And what is Cuomo like? I I get a feeling like when I hear him speak, he does make some common sense. He. I mean, do you like him? Do you not like him? Can you say? I feel like he's an executive and he does the job of an executive well. I don't think people like the way our government is organized when they realize just how much power executives have, be it our mayor, our governor, or our president. There are just some powers that they have or some in the way our systems are created where they get to, to leverage that power. So I think he's good at it. No, I don't agree with it 100%, all of his decisions 100% all of the time. However, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that I agreed with 100% all of the time. But I do think that, so I'm going to say I don't speak to him directly all the time, but I work with his team. And I get response. I get a good reception. And I feel like I'm able to work through the problems with his team or work to solution, I should say. That's really what I want. I don't care about the problem. I want to get to the solution. Right. And more often than not, that's what I'm able to get. And you you deal with foster care, mm-hmm. chair of the Assembly Subcommittee on Foster Care. That has to be suffering right now, is it? So one of the biggest things that we focused on was what's happening to the kids that are aging out. We don't have a lot of children throughout the state in foster care. I think our number is somewhere around 8,000. So it's not a overwhelming number of of children. But what we have to be particularly concerned with are those who are aging out at this time. So the one thing that we've been able to push through, we're working out the final details, I believe the governor is going to sign the bill, is to allow those who are aging out and who may not have a place to go to, to return to foster care so that they can receive the wraparound services and care that they were receiving while they were in foster care. And that's one of the big things. A lot of kids, once they become 
of age and are able to age out, they want the ability to be independent. But in this period of COVID, they're not going to be able to get the educational opportunities or job opportunities that they normally have. So we really want to be able to wrap around them and bring them back. So that's been one of our major concerns. Very often, our young foster um, kids get a lot of love and attention. And it's just like adoptions. They just, everybody wants the cute three-year-old. But by the time they're 15 or 18, and they may have some relationship with family, but it's tenuous, they're not able to return there. We really want to create network so that they have the support that other kids have. And everybody knows that family doesn't always look like mom and dad. Family sometimes looks like auntie and sister and brother, cousin. And so we've got to make sure that we're building those kind of forever family networks for foster kids. So that's been a lot of what our work has been. Nice. And reuniting families, trying to make sure the families do not get separated. That's probably the most important thing. How many single mothers approach you or single ladies? (laughs) (laughs) How about that at the foster care? Single ladies, where you at? You know? (laughs) Listen, I'm going to say I could fill a room with black single women who've never been never been married and never had a kid. Right. And I am seeing a growing number of them reaching out and becoming foster parents or thinking about becoming yeah, foster I'm one, parents. I'm one. And so I'm going to say, I'm very happy about that. I think that that is what we need. These women happen to usually, they're usually very successful on, like they're on top of their game, whatever their game is. And it's nice to see them wanting to connect with someone younger, wanting to build family and relationship and nurture. So I'm all in for oh, it. Oh, okay. Well, I, I don't know if I have all three of those things of those women, but <laughs> I definitely would like to, you know, yes, <laughs> hang out maybe. <laughs> I do I do TT Thursdays. They could come on. Maybe one of the They kids. can do TT Thursday and they need a mentor. Because I was going to say, that's part of their forever family. Yeah. If they know they can reach out to you and chat with you about... I went on an interview. I don't have a resume. What am I going to wear when I go see this person? You know, I have a date on Tuesday. He wanted to do this. Should I do this? You know, like that's part of our forever family. Yes. Yes. And it's right. I just need to always remind us our family's much bigger than mom and dad. It is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This Thanksgiving, speaking of family, so. You know, we have that one article in here about the Brooklyn elites um, that I was reading and I was like, ooh, that looked like. Yeah, so a birthday party that had 30 people. I was going to say, we also have reports now of a recent wedding that occurred here in Brooklyn that had almost 7,000 people. That's the Orthodox community, right? Uh, he says Thetum. I'm not Hasidim. sure if he's, okay. I don't know how if he refers to himself as Lubavitch or Hasidim. I'm not sure, but I know that it was 7,000 people. Seventh, I saw the video. I saw that video <laughs> last night after I sent this article about the Brooklyn political elites. And I was like, this is something, and this is why do you jump in with this uh is it me or is the coverage about the Hasidic community and this party not as big as the one like when I see like on Times Square, they broke, they stopped a party in Times Square last night as well. And they stopped a party in the Bronx. But when it comes to the Hasidic community, there's some type of eggshell walking, tiptoeing around it, political posturing. Is that my imagination? 
So I'm not one of the reporters and journalists. I'm going to pass that one to Zawadi because I'm not sure what they're thinking when they report stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Zawadi. Because I do feel like there's a bias in the coverage. But I am going to say that coverage was not in real time because that party happened about a week or so ago, at least, at least 10 days ago. And I'm just now seeing it. Right. We're just hearing about it. Even more so. Okay. Now I'm really upset because I thought this was last night. Mm -mm. It's occurring for a couple of reasons. I think one of the primary reasons why we see a lot of times the Orthodox Jewish and Hasidic community sort of sidestepped um, in the press is because the city has allowed for so long for them to live separately and in an insular way with their own, uh, you know, ambulances, schools, all the major institutions, they have their own police department. And that to me is just completely baffling and befuddling alone. I didn't know they had their own police department. Yes. I mean, I've seen police cars flying down the street, um, Hasidic, what are they called? Um, uh, they they have their own name, but I've seen them flying down the street and then cars parting, you know, the ways like the ocean for these Jewish policemen. And I'm just like, are we, who are we beholden to right now? Are we beholden to the city? Are we beholden to them? So it's always been this nebulous sort of relationship that we've had with them where we have allowed them to kind of live separately. And so now when it comes to a universal mandate in the city around this virus, they're of the belief that they can do things separately. So there's this cognitive dissonance between them. Like, do we, um, you know, carry on the way we always do separately, not listening to anything that the mayor says, or do we follow rules? And so asking them now, after allowing them to basically be free, asking them now to follow our rules is there, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing. It's a challenge. Right. It, we, we set the pattern. We set them up. And then the second thing is, yeah, there are some political money ties, things going on there as well. You see that happening in politics. You see that happening with folks that they decide to get behind to run for office. Um, you see that happening with the posturing that goes on when, whenever there's an acidic that is attacked, they want the politicians that they propped up to come out and make a statement against an anti-Semitic statement or a statement against anti-Semitism, even if that crime or infraction or whatever it is might not necessarily have been had anything to do with their uh, religion. They just, you know, it was a circumstance or it was a, a statistic or whatever. Yeah, you see this happening all the time. And it's, it's always kind of like unnerved me. But, you know, from my end, I just continue just to report. I try to do it unbiased. But yeah, I, I see it happening on both ends. I see the the city kind of supporting it and keeping a hands-off approach Which too. is crazy because that's why we're seeing the numbers spiking. I mean, the, I mean, the numbers were going to spark regardless because we, as we see in Italy and Europe, like even as they had strict measures, it's, it, it spikes. We knew that was going to happen. I liked what Cuomo said. I'm going to say this before Lindsay, if she does joins us. <laughs> <laughs> that he said, if you do all those things, like don't wear a mask, you still gather in large numbers for Thanksgiving, promise me that you will take full responsibility for anyone who gets sick. And I thought that was a very like powerful and accurate thing to say. You're going to take them to the hospital. You're going to pay for their medical bills. And the guy was, he said, the guy he said that to was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't, he goes, no, no, no. It's okay because you, you've already taken the response. You're saying that you're going to still do this. The measures have been handed out to you. We've told you what not to do, and you're still going to do it. 
So take responsibility is all I'm saying is if people get sick, you're there for them. Yeah, but who's going to do that? I mean, let's I mean, honestly, who's who's really going to take I just I just like the fact that he said it because it does put it's really about themselves. It's a very selfish act. I mean, I'm somewhat, as my sister said, obsessed. Oh, my curtain just fell. Obsessed with. Let's uh, <laughs> <laughs> be talking about it too much. <laughs> like, why did that happen? That's weird. I'm somewhat obsessed with the COVID and all of this. She was. She said that to me last night. She's like, you know, are you a little bit obsessed with it? And I go, it's a pandemic obsession during a pandemic about the pandemic is probably the smartest thing you could do. I, I like to be informed. I have to. You know, Marina, a lot of it comes down to, I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at the COVID-19 Writers Project that we finished last month. Let's talk about it. One of the things that we talk about um, early on in um, the production was risk assessment. Risk assessment, it ties into people's belief around um, how much they need to protect themselves. And that goes back to... Um, what people really believe about the virus. So when you have uh, uh, all these variables and, and, and this wide variance and who believes in the virus and who doesn't, I mean, there's such a wide variance. And there's so many points along that, <laughs> along that um, you know, variance that it's like some people think it's a conspiracy theory, some people think it's completely fake, some people think that it's you know, real and it's gonna, they can breathe it in by standing next to someone, just standing there next to them. I'm like, there's such a wide variance, you know? So, so then you you kind of determine your risk assessment, like what's my risk around this? And so your behavior is gonna be shaped by that. And because we didn't have a, a universal message from the beginning, we didn't have a universal approach from coming from the top up, bottom down from the beginning. I mean, there's gonna be a certain measure of variance anyway in something like this, but the fact that we opened this whole thing up back in February and March and didn't have any real guidance, uniform guidance, it has completely, it's like the wild, wild west now with it. It's completely out of control. I definitely am the person who, if you're standing next to me, uh, like I took off my mask for a second at a comedy club and I was just like by the door that's going outside with that's open and air flowing. But I look in the mirror and I went like this and I was like, I freaked out for a whole week because I did that because I just breathed in. <laughs> you know what? You can't, I almost feel like you're in a good position then because you're going to be extra vigilant <laughs> around the virus. See, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I always wear my mask when I'm out. Um, I'm constantly washing my hands, but I have this idea in my head that, you know, I've never gotten the flu. And I've never taken a flu virus. And I have this idea in my head that I have super immune system working and, and that I probably was a symptomatic and my body fought it off. I'm always saying that. <laughs> so, I'm in the same boat. I'm with you. And I have a whole cocktail of echinacea, elderberry, vitamin C, iron, and a multivitamin. And I'm like, yep, I take all of that. And I know that I, I'm positive because I was in the, the um, chamber with all those other folks that have been, they were infected and hospitalized. So I feel like I have breathed the air that they breathed. And I know that I, I've got it. I have like, it. And I told my mom, I was like, mom, I got the antibodies. She's like, did you go get tested? I was like, no, but I, I know I got it. <laughs> She's like, you are ridiculous. She's like, I might just go on ahead and get tested, but I really, 
I feel like I'm not gonna be you. You internalize like your body. Your body on a cellular level believes what you tell it. <laughs> I'm getting metaphysical here, but Marina, for real, you know what? My my body told me stay don't away from people. Don't freak your body out. Don't freak your body out. You're well. Like, I don't. I don't freak my body out, but I do this. I I do measured risks. That's what I call them. Measured risks. Like I still. I was still performing up until a week ago and then someone who was hosting the show tested positive and you're like up oh, that's the end of that and they and see like i have this microphone here like i touched it like that you know like i take my own microphone down i take this with me so i don't share microphones with anyone look back in the day anyway these things were so nasty like if someone was just on stage talking and they had bad breath I'd be on stage and I could smell all of that in, this, uh, in the microphone. It is disgusting. So we shouldn't, we should have always had our own microphone as far as I'm concerned. And I'm also around all these co comics are just, I'm sorry. They are nasty. Not all of them, but most of them are, their habits are like disgusting. <laughs> Marina's funny. <laughs> I get the, I get the, I get the 411 on comics. Every time I talk to Marina, she, <laughs> I, I swear. I mean, and she's been doing comedy now for over 20 years. She started when we were, I've known Marina since college. So she started when we were in college. I mean, the, it's so interesting to me. She basically tells me that they're just completely dysfunctional. <laughs> but she speaks about it as if she's the only one out of all these dysfunctional beings <laughs> who's not dysfunctional. I don't see any dysfunction in you, Marina, but I'm like, okay. They've seen it. They've I'm seen like, it. how is it that everybody else? <laughs> yeah, no, they have. They, a lot of them go, I didn't think, now I see it. When they're around me long enough, they go, oh. <laughs> I thought you were one of the normal ones and, I, and now we, <laughs> but it's okay. I'm definitely though. I have a little bit of, you know, I never shook hands. Okay. That was one of my things that started like a year or two ago where I would just go the fist bump when Michelle Obama introduced the fist bump. First of all, she should receive an award like <laughs> what is the is it the um humanitarian award humanitarian award <laughs> just for that alone just saying that while she was in the white house just doing the fist bump because i don't what are you doing and do i need do i need to do i need to report you <laughs> <laughs> no I so i'm officially gonna have eight people no money didn't they say you could have up to eight though? Didn't they I think it's like eight or 10. ten. I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah. My family lives, we live across the street from each other. We're going to be together. Okay. Yeah. Now everyone's tested though? Nope. <laughs> Marina's like, ah! Ooh. Listen, I've Marina. Never, I've never been tested. I'm absolutely positive that I've had it at some point. Miss, Miss Wright. <laughs> Now, okay, Miss Wright, hold on. You know where everyone's been? Yeah, they've been at home. One is my mom, who's seventy something. Oh She's wow, you've been with her house. every every day, and yes, I, that's I'm staying here with her. I've been staying here. You haven't been going to no parties, right? Well, I do go out because, like yesterday, I was giving out turkeys. And that's right, I saw that. So, like, I show up for stuff, like even when we were in um, quarantine and we were locked down and we were shut down. I was connecting and engaging with public because I gave out PPP. I dropped off stuff at stores. And so I've been interacting. So that's why I said, I'm kind of like Zawadi. I feel like I've been exposed. My body's probably fought it off 
I was actually in China last fall in October. So like China? I feel like yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Which part? See, now she's afraid she's gonna catch the COVID through this uh through this Zoom call. She's like, <laughs> not get COVID through this Wait, which which part of China? All over. Were you in Wuhan? We did go through Wuhan. We went through um Hunan. I went all the way north into like Shanghai. Let me find out you had one of those little dogs at the market. You didn't eat no at the market, dogs. did you? No, no. <laughs> no market food. <laughs> Thank how God. was that? Look, I'm interested in knowing how China was. It was a lovely trip. And I would never really given that much thought to China. But I went and it was illuminating. I'm going to tell you what I did learn. They're doing a tremendous job on how they develop their cities. It's very structured. It's very organized. And it's in part because they own everything and they can tell people to move. And, you know, they have some controls that we don't have. But things are laid out in plans. The cities are laid out in a way that's really well organized to make sure that everybody has Internet access and a mobility access and the streets are about 15 lanes wide in some of the cities. It's really interesting. And that's why we were there to look at the development and how the cities were Can the we planning go, was happening. You know, I, I, I interrupted you earlier on. I kind of want to go back to that, what you said about Internet access and the children. How What is the plan to get all kids the right? I don't think we have a real plan in this city because it happened too quickly. Okay. That's just my that's my assessment from the outside looking in. We have too many pockets of the city that doesn't get reliable internet service. So we can't have a plan to just send kids home and tell everybody in a family to get online and to stay online for four to eight hours a day and think that everyone's gonna be able to have uninterrupted service. Here in this neighborhood, I know that we've been using NYC Mesh and I am a big proponent of it. I like the idea. It is community run, it's community operated. Um, if you want to install your own antenna, you can do that. And other people feed off of the nodes. So one of the conversation points that I've been having as I get ready to transition out is how can I work with small businesses and some of our partners here in the community so that we can put mesh in our businesses and then they can serve as nodes for the rest of the community. Just figure out how we grow the internet service. I don't know if Altice is coming to the table with the idea of putting up new nodes or anything, but we've got to find a way to make sure that everybody has access. Because in this moment, if we don't come up with an immediate solution, people are completely cut off from society. That's right. Folks have not left their house, so they really just need this. They need it for everything from church to social gatherings. You know, one of the good things that this uh, that this virus, this pandemic has done for us, and some people are... are recognizing it and taking advantage of it and others aren't is, is exposed our slip. And I think that in, in many ways, we're seeing all of our pain points and we're seeing all of our weaknesses. And we're also seeing a lot of beauty. We're seeing things that, you know, it's like when you pull back your dress, you get a chance to see, or take your shoes off, you get a chance to see if someone has pretty feet or if they need a manicure or a pedicure. There are a lot of things that I think that we're discovering strengths that we didn't realize we had and access to things that we didn't realize. And there's a lot of things that we are realizing we don't have. And I think on a personal level, people are taking action from that, but we need to, for the next administration that's coming in, and we have another election coming up next year, we need to come up with a plan, a, a, either a Brooklyn plan, a bed plan, the same way the Bushwick plan and the East New York plan happened. We need to come up with a set of directives that we need right away that we've discovered in this pandemic. If we don't use this pandemic 
as an opportunity or at least elected officials to know right away, okay, we, we've got a set of 12, you know, bills that we want to start talking about immediately that we've identified from this pandemic. I think we should be doing that. And the same with Joe Biden's doing it right now. Joe Biden's doing it because, you know, they're coming up with a plan to how to deal with these. Uh, the vaccine, right? Oh, the racism. Vaccine, everything, you know, yeah. like, cause, you know, you're going to have the Proud Boys trying to act out once they get into office. So how are you going to deal with that? What kind of, what's, what's the plan for, um, you know, policing that type of behavior moving forward? Are you going to make it, are you going to designate it as a, as terrorism as it should be and, and treat it as such and prosecute people as such, or are we going to allow it to make it seem like, Oh, you know, when, when white folks commit terrorist acts, it's just white folks being bad as opposed to being terrorists, domestic terrorism. So those types of things, you know, Ice Cube and his platinum plan for black folks that he presented to Trump. We need to have a plan. We need a plan. We need a Brooklyn needs a platinum plan for our next administration coming in. What, what it is, they can come up with how it can be executed, but we need to let them know this is what we need. I just got off of a call. Maybe it was on Friday night with people all over the city. It was community all over the city. But I put the challenge forward I'm in the same vein. We're about to give a lot of people audience and time. We need to have a list of priorities that we want them to address and for them to explain to us, what's your plan of action? Yeah. That's it. Like, we're talking about education. Yes. So now we've been almost eight months, I would say, in this pandemic of trying to transition to remote learning. There are a lot of schools that have done, that do nothing but remote learning. So we need to tap into something to figure out how is this successful for Phoenix? Yes. And there was, there's a lot of schools in Florida that have been doing it for years. And there, there there's, there's kids who have completed high school through a remote learning system. Cause what system- about the kids who say that they remote learning doesn't work for them. No, see, it's because the what's been thrust in our laps in New York City is comp- entirely new. We weren't oh, prepared. so it's not a prepared system of yeah. remote learning. But remote learning. I don't think I'm a remote learner. Like, I didn't enjoy taking notes on a computer. I'm one of those people I learned from the process of writing. I think that part of our challenge is how do we address those concerns? And I'm not an educator. It's not just a general these kids don't respond to it. It's why don't they respond to it? What is the exact thing? When they do remote learning where it's successful, do they meet up socially mm-hmm. on the weekend? Oh, yeah. they do. Yeah, there's some there's some programs where they meet once a week. They take field trips. They do most of their learning at home. And then they get together so that the kids can exercise, you know, social skills. And they'll go to a, do a museum visit. They'll do a camping trip. The remote idea, because and the reason why I know is because my husband was an educator. He's he was a principal for 13 years. He was at one point looking for jobs, and he was like seeing increasingly more and more job openings for principals at remote learning schools. And this was before the pandemic. And he was like, "Wow!" And they're showing to be successful. But these were people who had started this, putting this in practice at least 10 years ago, and had kind of developed a successful model for that group. It's not for everyone, so it was. They needed parent buy-in. They needed, you know, of course, the, the children's buy-in to something like that. And it usually saw participation mostly from parents who already were doing some form of um, home homeschooling. And so the children were already disciplined about working from home. And the parents were already committed to a schedule of making sure that they, you know, met certain requ- educational requirements. And so having the remote learning for them was just giving enhanced 
it's something that they were doing anyway, but it was an enhancement for them. And then plus the kids got to have friends go out and play dates and learn at the same time. So it, it can be done. It's just that the the form, the way in which we had to respond here in New York City, anything that happens in New York City is going to be a nightmare monumental task. Just because it's like dominoes effect. I was gonna yeah. say it's we're trying to change the course of a ship, not a little speedboat, yes. but a real ship. I was on a call with the president of Paul Quinn College from um, Texas, and they are it's a HBCU, very successfully um, rolling out a remote degree program. He said that there are just kids that don't do well in school already, did not do well in their remote learning program. So they had already been doing some beta testing on different program models to help overcome those achievement gaps that existed when kids entered the program, as well as um, how do they minimize whatever conditions exacerbated the, the learning, created learning hurdles, I should say. But it's work. And I don't think that we've had that opportunity to explore those kind of models. We just went straight to, here's a computer Miss Teacher is going to be on screen at 9 a.m. in some cases, and it wasn't even uniform in our system what remote learning should look like, how many hours on screen versus how much independent work time. So we've got some questions that we need to answer, and we're getting ready to get a bunch of people that want to be our mayor who's going to have the ability to appoint <laughs> a new school chancellor. A bunch of people that want to be. It's good. <laughs> And so we've got to have questions for them. Like, right. what is your plan for yes. when you appoint a new chancellor, if you engage with the existing chancellor, what is your plan for remote learning? How do you plan to move forward? What are your ideas? What initiatives do you think we should be doing? What kind of internet access should we have? If we could spend all that money on all those link systems throughout the city, those pods that allow people to charge their phones and stuff, do we continue to roll those out? Is that the infrastructure that we need? Yeah, like, is that what? really that important? I never understand. I'm like, I saw like, I mean, I'm not, you know, homeless, but it was t- using that for. Because it's to make phone calls. It's to charge phones. It's to make phone calls. It's to access information. Okay. It's to provide a internet opportunity for people who might be on the street. Sometimes it's wayfinding in there for folks. So if we can provide that, maybe we should be exploring what that could be used for to create pods or act pods or nodes of access for other people throughout community. So I'm just saying, these are things to talk to our mayor about who wants to be mayor. Let's talk about this. And can we fire spectrum? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I am such a Karen. It's so obvious, right? Look at me. I just want, I'm so mad at spectrum. I mean, they always say that spectrum or cable for anyone who's running for office is the go easy go to because people hate their internet providers more than anything. They always, because they have such a uh, control over everything. Like in, I heard that in my, like in certain buildings, landlords strike a deal with the cable company so that the other provider can't be an option. No. Is that so, not true? No. Um, cable companies have monopolies in areas. So Spectrum operates in one area. Um, Altice Optimum operates in the other. And now we have an overlay with Fios, and that is because they're not considered a true cable company. They're also the phone, and that's where they get there, and they get to enter the market and do an overlay because they're coming in as phone company, not necessarily 
the cable company. And that's why, and so you can get I need some TV. Fios. So Fios might be in your neighborhood. It's I don't not. Know. I checked. I'm going to say my aunt just, she had, she had Spectrum. I just went to the house the other day to cre- to um, install her digital converter box and an antenna. <laughs> she oh, was wow. done with. Oh, you do everything. <laughs> Lord, have she mercy. She was done with Spectrum. For Thanksgiving, you did do the community, like, was it turkey, like, feet? What did you, because I saw that on your, I think it was your Instagram, or I saw, like, a post about you doing so, a community. Yep. We gave out turkeys yesterday. We're going to give some out tomorrow. Tomorrow's Tuesday. Yep, Tuesday afternoon. We're going to do a turkey trot later on this week. Well, the turkey trot is ongoing because it's virtual. And we're going to do a PPE probably next week or the following week so that folks can come and get more sanitizer and masks and just be prepared for whatever might be coming down the pipeline. Where, where is that they go to, to get So those? generally we do all of our giveaways at Restoration Plaza because that's where my office is and it tends to be central to my neighborhood. We've also taken it to different places. So I've done it in different parks in the neighborhood, at different supermarkets. And so I just try to move it around sometimes. But this will definitely be at Restoration Plaza. Any vegan options? Sanitizer is alcohol. It is vegan. <laughs> <laughs> you said the sanitizer. Yes. No, but um, the food, they, they give turkey, but they also give pantry items. Okay. So they were giving macaroni, cranberry sauce, cranberries, Cake mix, cornbread, you name it. It was a little bit of everything. Corn, uh, string beans, peas, all of that was in the bags yesterday. Okay. That's great. All right. As long as you're being safe. Look, I'm having another half flash. Can you see I'm shining? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am encouraged because I'm on Fulton Street a lot. I would say about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, a lot of times if you saw a person walking by themselves, they would have their masks down below their face. Yes. Because they were by themselves. And as they approached people, they would put it up. In the past two weeks, everybody has had their masks. I've on. noticed that too. No one has it hanging low. It's always covered. And, and I think people are conscious and I think people are taking it seriously. The majority of us, I think that we are trying to be careful so that we can protect ourselves and protect others. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I have seen the change too. I mean, because, oh God, my neighbor, Gene, who I yell at constantly because I could see him. He's like 74, 75 years old. He comes out the door. He laughs now whenever he hears my voice because he knows it's coming. Where's your mask? Because he'll come out of his door with the cigar, like out of his mouth and the mask underneath his chin. And so I look through the people. I go, Gene, the mask is not on right. And he's like, I know, I know, I know, I got it. I go, no, no, you take that out and you put it over your mouth. And he's like, okay, okay. He thinks it's really funny. Does he live by himself? Yeah, but he has people coming over. I mean, through from March to like now. It's like a party over there. Um, (laughs) That's his pod. Don't worry about it. That's his pod. (laughs) Now, let me ask you, because this is, I have a hard time asking you this question, but I do want to ask about how you lost um, to, I don't want to say you lost, but you were unseated from your position as, is it in the 10th district or the 50? No, no. So I represent the 56th assembly district. Thank you. Yeah. Put and it, I put didn't me right. run for assembly. I didn't run for the same seat. I ran for a different seat and it was a Senate seat. Senate seat reaches from Red Hook all the way up to downtown Brooklyn, then across Brooklyn, North Brooklyn to Roundsville. So it was a much larger space. 
and I did not win that race. Another person won, and who's that? Uh, who's that person? I don't know. If you've never met him, I didn't either. So I guess we're in the same boat. But I hope that I meet my representative one day. Are you serious? How how, how is that possible, though? <laughs> it's called the power of. A Democratic Socialist of America. What is that? Maria, <laughs> we talked about this. <laughs> Maria, we talked about this. This is huge. That, this I'm going to say it's very interesting to me. It is a political organization that costs $750 to join, but they market themselves as socialists for the average person. So if the average person doesn't have $400 in the bank for emergency, I wonder how they have $750 to join a political organization. But this organization has labeled itself and has done a magnificent advertising job. Oh, there she is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that you've all resolved everything, I'm sorry. We just and she's determined. I just, just want you to know that about, she is. <laughs> I stole my husband's computer, so he can't do any work for the rest of the day. <laughs> oh, L- Lindsay, we were just talking about how great Cuomo is. <laughs> Right. Well, I'm looking forward to reading the book on, on um, <laughs> the fantasy that we're all going to be led down the path for. It's but just- uh, Tremaine was just finishing tell- educating me and re-educating me, I should say, about the... Say it again, Tremaine. I was saying that, that Brooklyn got smacked by the Democratic Socialists of America this season. Yeah, from ju- in June, the primaries. It was a sweep straight across north and uh, central Brooklyn. Oh, really? Yeah. So it just, they won pretty much all of their races. And so they have a solid presence in this part of Brooklyn now. Wow. Anyone that was, that had ever served in public office, in the legislature, working for anybody, was very effectively painted as being very right and being establishment. That narrative in this moment, I think, resonated with people who had lost jobs to a population of people who are. 35 and under, who might be probably graduated from college, say in 08, who've never had a, a, a steady job, who've been in gig economy their entire, they've never saved. All of this messaging made sense to them. As a result, that was the outcome. And it wasn't just my outcome. It was the outcome of very seasoned um, legislators who, for example, somebody who carried the raise the age bill for 12 years and finally got it passed was labeled and you know, painted as establishment and not trustworthy, and he lost his race. It happened straight across the board here. Well, Lindsay's trying to unseat some people, so what say you, Lindsay? Yeah, you know, and and it's very interesting because, you know, I think there was this conversation a lot more about Queens, and then, you know, to your point, I think kind of the, the tension with people feeling like they're not represented in power has moved. In Manhattan, what I've seen is it's a few dudes who are running kind of everything as much as it's, it's as much not feeling like anyone is being helped. Like in September alone, almost a million women left the workforce. That's so disgusting. And and that's all of us, you know, and, and um, with the school debacle of how both the mayor and the governor have handled it, there's just a tremendous amount of frustration and that's going to be heard one way or another. And it's going to have an outcome that, I think we're we're just starting to see, at least in Manhattan. You know, I think there. I, I wouldn't project to know what's going on in, in the case in parts of Brooklyn that I didn't get to know, like you. Like that's the stupid rule number one is to not do that. <laughs> so, but in Manhattan, I think people are just really frustrated by everyone in leadership. I mean, we talk about housing issues. 
I'm more familiar with the city council side of things. All we see is luxury buildings go up. And then the idea that mandatory inclusionary housing is going to be enough for people and that we would still go forward with luxury towers and things like that in the middle of a crisis when there's no one in any of the luxury towers, all the lights are off next to me on the entire west side of Manhattan. I think there's just a tremendous amount of frustration and I would rather listen to you on what that means and what's been happening in Brooklyn. I think Manhattan, there's a real tension there. And and I, so on that end of it, I, I am, I'm supportive of change because I think there's a lot of talking and not a lot of doing. And it's like a relay between a bunch of dudes, predominantly white dudes, older white dudes, who just pass the baton to each other. And, you know, women in the caregiving role, especially Black women, especially communities of color, predominantly are not being listened to. But I see in this case, Tremaine is not a white dude. No. She's a Black woman who's no. been part of the community for a very long time has been a community activist, has in, even been an entrepreneur. Look, I'm saying it much better than that at the top of the show, Tremaine. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right? And she was taken out of position without any understanding about, it's like, what are we doing? Yes, yeah. It's a lot of little bubbles that are forming up. But what I'm seeing is that sometimes it feels like that fr- that collective frustration, we conflate that collective frustration into one movement when everybody's, frustration isn't one thing. A black person's frustration isn't, yeah, to some extent it's about white male domination, but for us, it goes down more to a granular level before we even get to that. Like, I love the momentum that the the democratic socialist movement has made. And I love the support of, and, and how much faith that we're investing in the young folks, because I'm all about that and mentorship and building them up. It's been harnessed a little bit irresponsible very quickly. And we're, we've got all these voices who have their individual frustrations that aren't being necessarily meted out and addressed, but being used and leveraged to advance an agenda, a larger agenda of a majority that doesn't necessarily speak to everything that we need. So it's hard for me because I um, have complained about establishment behavior before you know, as a news person. And I, I hate it, like so much of it, but I also don't feel good seeing a 26 year old leading a conversation and they still living in, at home and haven't experienced life, you know, yet. Like there's a, a young, very brilliant guy running here in, in Brooklyn named Chiose. Brilliant. If you ever get a chance to like, I've heard I've heard about him. I see such a bright future ahead for him. The only issue I have with him is that he hasn't lived. <laughs> he has not lived. He just graduated this year, right? Yeah. Or last year, right? Yeah. From he, college. He just yeah. graduated. He has he's he has not experienced life. And and I know how much how how much confidence I had when I came out of even graduate school when I was 24, 25, finished graduate school. I thought I knew everything. You couldn't tell me anything. My voice was louder than probably it is now. I felt, and 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 when I compare that to who I was then to who I am now, I knew nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing. So, and I just want some of the younger folks to to take a couple of beats and learn to respect and listen, so that we can feel confident about bolstering them up. And it's just, it's it's important that we just kind of figure out a way to work together to work together i don't think that there is a a a spirit of working together and i've never felt this way before so i i I know you said like oh you didn't win the election i was like 
this is the first time I felt like, you know what, that's God's hand because this is a very toxic environment. And I feel like there, that the approach is not about how do we get to a new idea or a new solution. It's that they just want to burn a torch. It's like, let's just go in and burn it all down. And it doesn't matter who gets hurt in the process because I just want to prove and say that this is the way that it should be. Well, that's how I felt about defunding the police. I was like, burn that shit all down. It's the, it's yeah. the same parallel. Well, it's, no, you said that's you not that. how that's how activism speaks. That's not how legislation speaks. And I don't think that you can ask the person who has to go in and negotiate to spill their guts and say every thought that they have on a platform in public at the mic, because therefore they are ineffective as a negotiator. I think one thing that I never want to do unintentionally is to say that, you know, even what I'm, what I've seen and the fight I've had is representative of the broader, of the broader issues. So I want to acknowledge that and, and not jump into a stupid, <laughs> stupid moment there. Um, so no, I'm just saying, I think that that's the, the atmosphere that we're in. Yeah. And so like, I've met, like I've been doing what I do since I, like I could do it and be it as a volunteer or uh, owner or just the neighbor that lives next door to you. But in this moment, I feel like, you know what? I'm really happy to be able to step back because I don't want to engage with them. And I don't want to talk to them because I feel like they're, they're nasty. Sure. They're rude and they lie. One thing I, um, uh, one thing I, that was interesting for me is, you know, I was, I went to Wellesley. I wanted to be like Hillary. I, you know, I was mm-hmm. for her in 16. I made, I made calls. I did all, the whole thing. I worked for Cuomo. Uh, I was his economic development secretary. I did like all the right things that I'm supposed to do and, you know, made more powerful men look good and all that good stuff. And for me, you know, it came a point where I ended up seeing a lot of bullshit that happened uh, in the executive chamber and um, how things get done. And that's not to say the same thing. I think we're, to your point, there are a lot, there's a lot more nuance here than is being conveyed, which I, I completely share, uh, Tremaine, your frustration about that. Um, I was never a person who thought we need to burn everything down to make it right. I was working within the system. And then I realized that the system had a lot of real big problems in terms of whose voice gets heard. And uh, I'm pretty clear. At- <laughs> them because I'm not in your district, but if you came and you told me that, I'm like, so what exactly have you done to do something different? What is it that, so like, cause you don't have to wait to get elected to do anything. So what is it that you're doing and contributing to change? Like, cause you don't have to wait for something, Well, what is it that you're doing to change? Sure, well, I am, um, well, I'm actually running again. For borough president. Thank you. So no, I, no, I'm not, I'm gonna be I'm gonna hold you to it. Not about running for office. What are you doing? What have you done to make changes? Because you said that something frustrated you about the space you were living in. And other than leaving a job with Cuomo, you went and worked somewhere else, you do something with your off time. You're free on the weekends. I just want to be clear what I what I what I did. I worked for two decades in urban planning, mm-hmm. uh, in public parks, uh, which is before I worked for the governor in in um, then municipal finance, so funding mm-hmm. city infrastructure. Then I worked for the state and was the job secretary. And when I realized the rooms that happened, but how powerful. You haven't answered the question. You're, you're, you tell me your resume. You didn't tell me what you've done. Excuse me. Can you let me talk? Mm-hmm. 
Okay, great. So one of the things I care about most is mental health because I come from a family of women who've lost custody of their kids because of mental illness. So I'm regularly uh, talking about and working with NAMI and different groups that are trying to elevate peer conversations around this because I think one of the most debilitating things in our society is that we don't talk about um, mental illness and that we shame it and that we make it other. And, uh, you know, for me, that's really critical when we talk about issues of defunding the police because all the stuff we're hearing about has to do with a breakdown of our mental um, health system, our healthcare system. So um, outside to your point of what I did in jobs that I've had, I've really tried to speak regularly about coming from a family that suffers from mental illness. I, I try to engage in these conversations, advance the cause um, and on, on a local level, from a more activist standpoint, I've done a lot with NYCHA uh, tenants, uh, particularly around my community, which is Fulton Houses, that's that's experiencing the tension of privatization because there's not enough money to actually change things, as you're probably familiar. And I've been following the lead of other people who are who are advocating and leading. So I'm on a regular list of things to get set up and go to go and be supportive, just be one in the crowd, which is kind of my favorite thing to do and and listening as much as I can. And I've been phone banking at a federal level. I'm going to be phone banking for Georgia. So it's both national just as a volunteer. And then I'd say mental health is probably one of my biggest passions. I think if there wasn't so much shame and guilt associated with uh, the political process, maybe even people like Andrew Cuomo would be a little bit different, a little bit more honest leadership. And being a mom and trying to navigate uh, what it's like to be a mom of a young kid in the city right now is really tough. I think that's so important also because right now we're learning. Oh, did you like that answer, Tremaine Espy? No, I just wanted it to be what you're doing, <laughs> not your resume. Because I think that that's the, that's the core and the crux of what, what I think is missing in a lot of the conversation point is that people are talking about headline which is what my job title is. But I guess I'm not understanding the point. How is people's work not what they're doing? I don't I don't So know. I feel like that's one part of our person. And I feel like there are commitments that extend well beyond what you get paid for. And there are investments in community that are necessary well beyond the thing that we get paid to do. So if the only thing that I if the only space that I can articulate concern and engagement is in the space where I am paid for the service. I find that that is... How did you get that from what I was saying? No, no, no. I'm not saying that that's you. I said, that's why I asked you to tell us what do you do versus just your resume titles. Right. And so it's not about... So that's what I just wanted to pull out. What is it that you do? You do something. That's why you are going to run for office. You do something and there's something you care about. And that's what I wanted to hear. And so I was happy. She asked if I was happy with the answer. I was like, yes, that's what I wanted to hear. I want to hear somebody that cares about something bigger than themselves. Uh, can I, I say I'm glad she's running for borough Manhattan president only because I'm such a Karen. But the, the <laughs> people who are building a beer garden behind my building. Where is it? This Where is, is it? You got to be. Uh, OK, I know. But but you will be a borough Manhattan president for for me too, right in Harlem on 107th. Well, okay, the livability so. issue is oh, it's it, crazy. You know, I mean, I I spent and I thought this was very fun for me in my 20s. I had to care a lot about grass and and the film series that we had in Bryant Park, and it would give me heart attacks. I was thinking the lawn was going to die. But 
thinking about how people experience their lives when they wake up and they walk out of their door is what this job should be all about. Yes. And and in a time where people are afraid to be out and they're being asked not to be out, that makes them feel even less safe and welcomed in their own community. And uh, that's what it's all about. And, so uh, I need you to deal with. Yes. <gasps> okay. Her beer so, garden. <laughs> so, so this is the story that I have that is hearsay, but I know it's true. My, my neighbor is a bit of a gossip. He's 74 years old, but he always goes down to this restaurant, Lido, and they are building a beer garden underneath my damn window. Like right now, I don't know if you hear the banging and stuff, but they were back there doing this when we were all shut down and no one was allowed out, by the way. And when construction was supposed to be shut down, they were, look at me, I'm telling so hard. <laughs> they were still like back there banging on stuff. I called 311 so many times because, you know, I'm not. That's a, not a critical project. I'm not a bad Karen. I call 311. They're still doing it. And here's the thing. It's going to be loud. They already cut my, speaking of Wi-Fi and cable, they were responsible for the damage to my uh, cable wires but there's no accountability for any of it. Like they were, and then they're up. <laughs> no, no, you're know, right. You're okay. right. You're right. But you know what? You have to go to your community board meetings. I did. So this is the thing. I went to it and, oh, and, oh, so Lindsay, so this is the thing, a little thing for you. The oh, mat, I, the I current, need to be writing down this address so I can. <laughs> I'm giving you the you tea. The <laughs> Lindsay, you want this tea? I do. I always want the tea you're offering, Marina. This current Manhattan Borough president, apparently they were charged. They were charged for like doing, uh, having people out without masks or whatever. And apparently the Manhattan Borough pre- ripped up that charge. Like they don't have to pay it. Like, because she's friends with the owner. of. Now this is hearsay, but I believe it. And this is the thing is I, I went to, <laughs> I went to the community board member meeting just to see her. And I couldn't even get in to speak because they did the whole like, I am so-and-so addressing here for this meeting. We'll open it up eventually to the community. It never, and then an hour goes by and I'm like bored and I'm like, I gotta go. This was on Zoom, right? (laughs) Was this in person somehow inexplicably? Marina, I love your retelling of the community board meeting because you know what? We need to reform those too. That's oh, they're horrible. We need more people to start coming. No, I need. uh, Nope, I'm going to defend community boards right now because (laughs) clearly y'all don't understand that that part, the meeting that you showed up to, is not where work happens. That is literally the reporting out of the work that has been done in all of the committees that they have served. You got to go to a committee. You meeting. have to go to a committee meeting. Committee meetings are where to work here. At that public meeting, they are literally only reporting out the work that has been done. They said there was the neighborhood. And they make presence. Well, was this a public comment of the committee or was it the whole board? That is the full board meetings are where they report out from their committees. And yeah, they make a committee meeting. I'm sorry? But she could attend a committee meeting. Uh, yeah, they said I can attend. And you can join any committee. You don't even have to be appointed to join the committee. So I'm going to, I have to give them some. Well, I wrote them and I said, I need to talk about what's going on. And they told me to come to the next one, the community. I went to that community one. There was a lot of like, this is my title. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is my meeting minutes. <laughs> and I was like, I am, when do we get to hear me? When, when, 
When do I get to say what's really going on? The general board meetings are not where that conversation. But I'm going to say they're all public meetings. They have to keep the records. And part of it is reading their minutes and going oh, through all of that oh, stuff. Maria, Maria's like, no, no. No, like. The, but they have to because they're public meetings. What do they get do that it. from? Isn't that, isn't that like the constitution? That's old school. Let's, they okay, have to it. do it, though. That's they how they it. keep oh, records. Because they're public. She's like, right, oh, they've got to oh. do it. Well, they need to give me the hour I, that I need to come on so I don't have to hear all the minutes. But you could just send them an email. Oh, yeah. Or have a, a something entered into the record for committee meetings. But I think the committee meeting might be less frustrating for you because it's, you know, it's a series of topics. You know where your item is in the agenda. I do think, I mean, I'd be curious to know what you think on this, Tremaine. Has, has going to the WebEx online meeting forum made it possible? Like, I know a lot of moms who can go to their community board meetings now and they couldn't go before. What do you think? So I'm going to say welcome to the world that community board three has been doing for almost a decade. See, that's awesome. We've been doing live web streaming of our meetings for at least 10 years now, because it was at least the last five or six years that I was on the board. And did you get um, pushed back to do that? Because that's one question I have, like, there's always resistance to change, and at least in Manhattan, they're largely have been in person. But I've seen new faces at the meetings if you go online. So I can't, I, we didn't get any pushback. The hardest part was figuring out what technology we were going to use because I said this was 10 years ago. So you were, you were ahead of the curve on this. So it was, and not going to say Tremaine, it was our community board. It was, and I was a chair, but it, it it was our community board. What are we gonna do about this restaurant and this beer garden? I want so them. I want you to have a conversation with your neighbor first. <laughs> okay. But is it a street outdoor cafe or no, is it literally it's in, in a backyard? Open? It's a bar and they are deciding to build behind the building, which is rat infested. Right. And they have not communicated with any of the tenants. They they don't communicate, they just do and they build. Well, that's and, something to communicate to your community board um, yeah. you know, district manager. One is probably right of way. Yeah. They probably don't need to come and talk to anybody. It's their backyard. They're staying in their backyard. If they don't have any particular noise. It's so loud. Amplified. They're <laughs> in construction right now. <laughs> They're going to have people drinking alcohol. If there's two so, people there, it is so loud. I can hear it in my apartment. What's going to happen is. I'm going to tell you like Judge Judy says, move. No, I'm just kidding. No, I do need to move, but I'm I'm also feeling like it's just not like I'm trying to get the tenants involved because I'm. it's a quality of life, right? Like so I until should... it actually occurs, they're going to say that it's nothing they can do. What is the city supposed to say? We anticipate that you're going to have loud speaking customers. Like they can't. They don't know if he's going to put a tarp over it. If I've already amplified. complained about the noise and they did nothing. You might have to move, Marina. You might have but to move. But what about the, the rights of quality of life of, I mean, like in New and York. there were construction, there was non-essential construction permits released and given out all throughout COVID. So the fact that they were doing work. They didn't get that. Doesn't mean that they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have a When problem. I heard that lonely ass hammering, day one of maybe sort of a look towards opening up and i saw that i heard that lonely hammer i was like this motherfucker here and when i hear the owners drinking and drunk hanging out in the back when well, we all gotta stay inside no nah. they get to go in their backyard <laughs> that's not their backyard that's my backyard too <laughs> 
they don't, and they don't own it. They are renting. That means they have access. That means that they have a right. All the tenant advocates are going to come and fight you for saying that. <laughs> and they put a door so I can't get in there. That's if that's their the space that they've rented. That's going to be what they get. I have that space too, though. I'm renting as well. That is my bad. No, 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 Lindsay, no. You're, you're the borough president. <laughs> Lindsay, you're going to be the borough Manhattan president. I I am. For giving you your first constituent concern. <laughs> I will come any day with the sound, one of those sound monitors, and monitors. see what the issues are, and that's a starting point for it. Because it's to remain point, it's all about sound issues. That's where they're if, if they have as a break. And I will be there with you. Oh, thank you. Oh, that's all After I need. After we I... take the picture, not just you know all those political pictures people <laughs> take. They're like, I'm here helping. I will be there with you, and I'll help you figure out what the sound issue is because that's where the that's where the issue is i just don't like them okay <laughs> I just, I just, this time period getting any sort of outdoor cafe or extensions was i mean i don't know how it was in cb3 for you but in cb7 and cb5 next to impossible unless they had the as of right ability to do this like to get an sl liquor license for you know service out in an outdoor cafe in front communities would throw up, you know, anger about it and it would never happen. So that's part of the reason why this outdoor cafe situation is so different. It's such a big transformation, which to Tremaine's point is probably why the argument you're going to have has to be around sound because it's not around them using the space. So we need one of those, I can't remember what they're called, the the, the sound well, meter. I don't even know if they have the permits to do what they're doing. This is the thing. How do I check? <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't want to drill this point in, but it's oh. really important to me. Well, I mean, you can check through the Department of Buildings, I think, is where that would go through. I can. I will follow up with you on this. However, you don't need a permit to build in your backyard if you're not moving any major structures. If you're just building benches and flower pots and putting new potters in your backyard, you don't need a permit. Oh, it's not just that. They put a hole there's a shack back there right i was gonna say it's got to be like major structural changes for them to oh have it's to major structural changes <laughs> electricity and oh water. they cut my cable <laughs> all right so let's let's go into she's somebody. like they're done so lito just needs to know that she's about to shut them down <laughs> <laughs> what is the manhattan borough president's job Lindsay? can you define that it's mainly in three main categories, land use, weighing in with, with city planning. Um, they don't have a vote in city council. It's largely who you put on community boards and the capital projects that get done and funded across across the borough. And in my view, the, the, the time where this becomes the neatest is when we're going to have an austerity budget at the city and state level, because this is maybe one of the few, and not just in Manhattan, in Brooklyn and Queens, becomes one of the few roles where you can be a real advocate for your community against a mayor that regardless of how good they are, and I hope we get someone better, is going to be in a cutting mode. And Manhattan's success isn't just about Manhattan. It's the whole central business district for all of the city. I mean, we could say Brooklyn's changing that too and wouldn't fight that. But um, if Midtown doesn't come back, if our creative sectors don't come back, we're going to have some real problems from an economic standpoint. So for me, what this role is, not just the, the, the finite amount of power and funding it has to give out to predominantly schools and community organizations through capital investments and then community, point, community board appointments, but what it can be in terms of a bully pulpit, 
holding the mayor and holding the governor accountable and helping to define the kinds of investments that should be made in our communities should when we get federal aid. So I think it's like a bully pulpit in a lot of ways. People are like, that seems kind of wonky and it kind of is. And a lot of the power was stripped from these roles, you know, in the kind of consolidation, Robert Moses eras, you know, afterwards, the opportunity here is to really be a bully pulpit for, for, for Manhattan and for the future of the city uh, in a way that whoever the mayor is going to be isn't, isn't going to have the ability to be independent, in my view. All right. Good. So everyone's okay. Did Tremaine, you got something to say about that? <laughs> no, we're going to go to coffee. We're going to go to coffee. We're going to be best friends. We're going to be best friends. I can already tell. I, we're going to go to get donuts together. Tremaine, you got something to say about that? I know. I was like, I wanted her to tell us her story. <laughs> That's what I was getting at. No, I know. I, know. I, I just like it. I like it because I think this is a good conversation to have because the it does seem to be like sometimes there is a uh, the, the Democratic Party, there's a split and there needs to be communication. The need, you know, uh, one of the articles that I have, what happens when neither party gets to celebrate the election? Yeah, this year's election was among the most anticipated and perhaps most consequential in United States history, but it was not an easy election to celebrate. The results rolled in over several days and sometimes seem confusing. It is difficult for the Republican Party to celebrate when Trump has been defeated. And the task of recovery is made all the more challenging by his inability to recognize that reality, by refusing to concede and indeed insisting he has, in fact, won. The president not only prolongs the process, but puts on hold the sense of closure that his party and the country as a whole expects and deserves. What stung the most for Democrats was the failure to meet expectations created by polling that suggests a blue tsunami and a new progressive era in America politics driven in part by changing demographics, that they fell so far short of this must temper their sense of joy at recapturing the White House. And what do you think? What's what's wrong with the Democratic messaging right now? I keep going back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, younger people and um, everything is relative because, you know, my husband's a decade older than I am, but I'm by far like I am in a young person's business. Like everyone who I work with is younger than I am. And and I got a, a 19 year old niece who's you know going to community college in San Diego. There's a real lack of hope. I think, in, in, in kind of when people see the trajectory of the future of this country. And I did not have that. And I can only speak for myself and my place of privilege that I come from. But I didn't have that. I thought, I, I have so many more options than my parents. They put, they put all their hopes and everything in me. And I'm going to go out and change the world and make it a better place in my free time, not just in my official job for me. And now I talk to my niece, who's a brilliant, young, beautiful woman. And she's like, I don't want to have kids. The, the environment's going to be gone. I don't want to go to a four-year college because of the debt that I'll never pay off in any job where I can, you know, my mom, her, her mom was a waitress. She had a teaching credentials, but it made more, she made more money waitressing. So, you know, having to go on these unusual schedules, there's a lot of lack of hope. And I think one approach is to say like, you know, wait your turn. But I always got pissed when people said that to me, even if the journey has been long, you know? I think we need to find as much as there's this tension that is toxic. I agree with you, Tremaine, and we got to do something about it. I just put out there, there is a reason why a lot of people are pissed. Like the whole idea of a credit score when there's just no way for you to ever have a good one, you know, in this environment for a lot of young people. It's a real shitstorm. 
I think people are frustrated that they put all this energy in a system and then they get out of the most diverse field, Joe Biden or something. You know, I'm just saying, uh, I think the system feels like it doesn't change things very quickly. I have a bunch of nieces between the age ages of um, 18 and now 26. They were like stair-step children. There's like eight of them. I've watched them grow up as relatively happy children. Brilliant. This, this, this latest generation it just blows my mind how naturally smart they are and how quickly they absorb information because of computers. <laughs> their, their little brains are computers now. I think they're so disappointed with us when they look at this, this administration, when they look at us fighting about race. Because for a lot of them, they're like, wait a minute, why am I talking about race? Why are you making this an issue? Why are you making what sex I, I'm into if I, you know, if I choose to be binary? Why are you guys talking about this? You guys need to go. Like, they're really over it. And think about it, Marina. When we came out of college, you both, I don't know what class you were. I was 88 uh, in high school. And when I finished grad school, I knew for sure I was about to just soar. I was like, what is my future going to look like? And even as a person of color, I knew my opportunities were endless and they don't have that. Imagine if coming out of college and not having that, that feeling and thinking your parents totally lied to you and the system lied to you and set you up. But what I also am seeing from them is total disrespect. I have one by one been just like from my niece and to my nephews, just they, the way they talk to me and now, and there's it to me demonstrates their frustration but they're basically like, listen, you guys messed up. You don't know what you're doing. You need to go and give us, give us the platform, give us the whatever. We'll handle it. We'll take it from here. And so it's bridging that gap. It's empowering them with the confidence that, yes, you are smart enough and getting them to stop and listen to wisdom. Because I still refer to my elders. I still like to talk to people who are older than me. I still, I spent years in corporate. Hated it, but I knew that it was training ground for me and that I would never be able to get anywhere without spending some amount of time, you know, in corporate. Did you, you didn't do corporate, Marina, did you ever? I mean, I was a receptionist. I did corporate for like <laughs> 10 years. It was hell, you know? I mean, I worked at a consulting firm and they took me from the receptionist area and then they gave me like a job where I could make calls to find out who's working at like AT Kearney and stuff like that. Like I was, I was basically a snooper or spy <laughs> so they could pull them over and to their company and stuff like that. I was good at that. But that that, that whole, even that for me, like during corporate time was a, um, was boot camp for me. It was a training ground. And you know, whether I liked it or not, I understood that I had to learn uh, a template. I had to learn how to navigate the system and, how to speak in meetings, how to put together a presentation, like all of that I learned, how to use Excel spreadsheets and stuff, all of that I learned in corporate. And even starting my own business, I looked at a corporate model. So I, 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 we came from the, I, we were using encyclopedias when we were in, in grammar school, Marina. You That's know, right. um, I'm not sure how old you are, Lindsay. You look like you might be a decade younger, but I mean, we literally had to go to libraries and open up encyclopedias to do our book reports and to study and to have that come. And I started my first year in college, my mom gifted me a typewriter. We were still using typewriters. There's such a huge difference in the, the kids coming up now. When I tell them that my first, I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 27. They cannot believe it. They are just in total disbelief and just bridging that gap, 
you know, it's a big world. It's a big world difference. I mean, even my husband, he's like, I'm like, don't call me, just text me. You're, are you a serial killer? <laughs> I know my nieces. They're like, they used. I used to pick up the phone. Hi, auntie. Now I send a text, and they may or may not answer. They'll get it, uh, but they, you know, will decide. Well, why are you texting me? Like, why are you harassing me? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's always like, why are you trying to talk to me on the phone? Don't call me. You know, it's this huge acceleration that happened between that generation and ours that even though we can speak English and talk to each other, there's just so their sensibilities are just totally different. And we, we need to figure out how to somehow pull ourselves out of this polarized sort of environment. Cause I see merit in both sides. I see merit in what the progressives are trying to do. I love AOC, but sometimes she's, and let's talk about, yeah, what, what is it with AOC? Like, cause still, she's, she's another one who, you know, you got to slow down for a minute and, and kind of listen to <laughs> your elders a little bit if you really want to get anywhere. I think that both of us could stand to slow down and listen to each other and understand what's at stake if we don't, you know, because a lot of these young folks or, or what I'm seeing from a lot of the progressives is, is like, it's my, it's my way or the highway. It's my way or no way. And I think that some of the more established people are open to change, but the, the, the progressives are like, no, we're not doing anything the way it used to be done. Let's burn it down. Let's start fresh. And that, that way is going to set us back. Is that what's wrong with the messaging then? It's just this so division, this division doesn't make Republicans clear- are lockstep. Like even when they know, like when they know that Trump lost the election, they are lockstep in everything they do. That's why they win. And that's why they continue to barrel forward. They support each other all the way. Now that's a little bit to me over the top, but we can't be lockstep when our, when we have this big fissure in, in our, in our party right now, ideological fissure, which feels like it's miles apart, but it really isn't. It's just the process to getting there. It's just different. And I think, I think the Republicans use that a lot. I mean, look at Ted Cruz. He's, such an asshat and you know he gets out there every day and says all this stuff and 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 yet to your point you don't see a lot of division amongst the ranks right even if someone's way out there and then there's this like oh, i'm just a fiscal conservative kind of like you know and but there's no division to your point none there's very little distinction between what the democrats as a whole want to see achieved the problem is in the how do we get there I think that we are seeing the urgency from the younger people that they they are not accustomed to waiting. They don't understand the temperament that allows you to wait for a phone call and then a call back and a a memo that is actually being mailed versus a text that was sent. Like I just think that things operate and I'm closer to you, Zawadi, so we've sort of lived in both of those worlds. We did learn a lot when it was just typewriters, and we also had to quickly transition. Like you said, second year, you were on a computer, to the next year being able to word process and use computers. And so we've lived in both of those spaces. I don't think it's as foreign to us to navigate it. At this moment, we're asking people who have never navigated. They don't know what a dial tone sounds like. Oh, that's true. Wow. And we're asking them to have a conversation. Unless it's in a movie. Right, (laughs) (laughs) which I was like, I heard a phone ring in a movie, and I was like, turn that down. Exactly, and people are we're asking them to live (laughs) in both worlds with them, and they've never, they don't have the, they honestly just haven't been groomed to do it. So it's urgency, it's immediacy, it's it has to happen right away, 
And unfortunately, a lot of the things that we're talking, like I was talking about somebody that didn't win their election that actually carried a bill for 12 years before it was passed. It wasn't that he was sitting and twiddling his thumbs on it. It was really about having to, he pushed something that was so forward thinking that it took 12 years for the environment to be right for us to be able to coalesce and to pass it. And now we're state. Like nobody appreciated that amount of work that it took to get there. It was, if it didn't happen immediately, it was like, get rid of the police, cut it down, we're done. And sometimes it's just, I think we have to also help them to see that sometimes the process of change does, it's multi-layered because it doesn't just happen. One change could actually devastate lots of people. And I think that oftentimes what I found the conversation points for God is that we could actually decimate the people who live in the middle if we did it the way that it was being proposed. The people at the top don't get hurt. And the people who we support with social programs, we're going to keep capturing. It's all the people in the middle who get decimated. Yeah. Like voucher programs, all the things on the margin, the Affordable Care Act, who would be hurt? All of those people, the people who already negotiated $100 a month for health care, that now the health care is going to go up. Like, I'm one of those people. I had health care while I had a, a small business, and I think I was paying about 200 a month. After we passed the, the Affordable Care, I was paying, they wanted almost 600 yes. for one yeah. person. So, again, I'm just saying, like, the I'm one person, and I know that I'm not alone, but what we're not talking about is that when we talk about these big shifts, people in the middle get hurt. And everybody is not always able to rebound quickly and easily from it. And so that's what I think that part of our problem with the Democratic Party is, is that we want the same thing, but we're arguing over how, instead of realizing that it is a nuanced conversation about how we get there so that we don't end up harming all the people in the middle who are our natural allies, our supporters, and our regular voters. We need to have these conversations more. I'm not seeing them enough. People are having like subtext conversations amongst each other. And the groups are kind of like having them within their own, like the, and and all it does is just polarize the groups even more within the Democratic Party. And we need to have these cross conversations about what's at stake. If we don't in some way figure out a way to coalesce these two real, I, I feel that the old school has some amazing things to bring to the table. And then these young folks are brilliant, but we need to figure out how to to actually make that click together and not become enemies the way the Bernie bros were ready to like torch, you know, Hillary, the way they torched Hillary, like, come on now. like The weirdest thing I saw, I mean, what I was going to say on that is, so I voted for Hillary and I was supporting her in the primary in 2016. And then, you know, I had sort of my own personal evolution, which we don't need to talk about. It's not about me. And I was looking for a more progressive direction in, in this past election cycle. And my, my observation is that whether any of the presidential candidates had people who like to be toxic online. I mean, I experienced it from Elizabeth Warren folks, even though she was one of the first people I donated to. I've seen it, um, you know, with Andrew Yang folks, because one of the people running against me, was, you know, I've, I've seen it in every group. I do think the Twitter world, the level of anonymity, like you can be a Stan account with like an ironic name and, and not your own, but you can have tremendous visibility adds to the complication of these conversations. I, and the only other thing I was going to say, because I think this is really important, is at least my impression, and not to say that it hasn't been the same in the past, 
a lot of people are growing up. You know, my dad was in the first Iraq war. And then we had George W. Bush, who sent us back on, you know, a goose chase that was on faulty information. And, and this generation has grown up with um, a lot of losing wars, losing people, the financial crisis, which was just after I graduated from college. And there's not a lot of impression of things getting better and and things working. And, and I think that's the design of the GOP. You know, that's something that should bring us together. I mean, public housing doesn't work because public housing hasn't been funded. You know, our Affordable Care Act doesn't work in part because the mandate has been stripped away through legal proceedings. And so I think when we talk about people wanting to, to burn it all down, there's a dynamic we need to talk about at the table where people feel so mistrusting of the system. The Affordable Care Act isn't affordable, like you said, Tremaine. Like it's so- No, it's- no, 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 no. Let me be clear. Okay. The Affordable Care Act in New York State is- and we only have less than 7% of our people in New York State who are not um, insured. And we also included the essential plan, which is $10 a month. Right. Well, I, I still don't think it's affordable. This, this, is, a, this is an impression. I mean, we, we, we may disagree. No, no, no. So I get it. And that, but that's what I'm saying. Like, So we've got to stop talking about impression and start talking about what really exists. So when I'm talking to somebody in New York City that tells me, Afford- there's no affordable health care. And I'm like, yes, there is. It's a $10 plan. $10 a month. The essential plan has been in place from before I was elected. I was doing health um, emblem or whoever it was set up so people could come to my shop and sign up for health care. So that option exists and it we modeled something that can work here in New York State. But we had to do the expansion of the Medicaid and that's how we were able to get it done. Yes, do we still have 7%? Yes, we do have 7% of the population, which I think also includes our undocumented people. So we've got to figure out a way that we capture all people. But that's not the same conversation that's happening nationally. And part of our- But that's not what I said. I mean, we're saying different things. We're saying different things. No, no, I'm just saying that the lack of our ability to talk about the nuances of what really exists is part of the problem. So when somebody comes to the table and they say, oh, we don't have affordable care, and you're like, here in New York, we do. So let's talk about what is working. Well, and that's how we your perspective. Your, that's your perspective. That's not everyone's perspective. No, no. This is a person who is saying, I'm engaging with people generally yeah. who are having conversations about these issues and they are in this locale. So am I. And people are saying it's not affordable. And No, no, no. And I'm saying that they're in this locale. And so if they're having it in this locale, then I need to talk about what's happening here. And if we're trying to fix what's happening nationally, then I'm saying if we found that this is pretty much working, how do we mimic and model afterwards? And so I feel like that's where some of the discord is in our conversation. Like we won't talk to each other about the real details of the issue. Right, but I, I said something and you disregarded it, which is another toxic thing to do. No, I didn't disregard it. I said it's working. We do have some because there is a model of it. And so when we say things that are unilateral, Across uh, the board, we said. don't have that's it. We don't have the health care. That's not what I said. You have your perspective, and I have mine based on people I'm interacting with. And I'm just saying that there's a whole generation of people that feel as though many of these social systems have failed them, in part because for a lot of people, five or six hundred dollars a month is not an affordable plan. And that happens both in New York and it happens on a national level. And um, that's not to say that I'm focusing just on that one issue. But it absolutely has um, motivated the conversation around the progressive movement for people to say these incremental steps haven't been enough. 
to, to reduce the pain point in my family's life or my community's life. And I think if we could, you know, respect both opinions on that, you know, I think we can come to a fix on a lot of issues. I just, I think there are different opinions on this. I'm also just going to throw in then that we also leave out of the conversation very often. And as being here in New York, we need to make sure that we continue to have the conversation is that many of our unions do not support this because they have negotiated costs and families that are paying about $100 a month or $200 a month for full families are going to see exponential increases under the proposals that are national plans. And so that's why I said having a conversation about what is working here and trying to make it expand to what could go beyond our borders here in New York State is what I'm thinking. Those are our challenges as a party. We're not having those sophisticated level conversations. And as a party, we're leaving too much to the headlines. We're leaving too many to the sound bites. And we're having conversations, as you've mentioned, in Twitter versus having real legitimate collective conversations so that we can really delve down into the issues. Because it those things really do make a difference. And I need us to be able to explore it. Yeah, I mean, I think they're different, different unions have different feelings on these things. And a lot of it's because, to your point, they've negotiated agreements for their own membership that uh, would not be as attractive under a uh, universal health care system. But uh, some people would say, I want everyone to have that kind of level of benefit, you know. So, you know, I, I, I think if we four of us were in charge of working it out, we could do that. So well, <laughs> I don't know about myself. I, I mean, I'm I got to just tell jokes. But I do want to ask you this, ladies, because we kind of, you know, because, Lindsay, when you joined us and I, I kind of want to keep recording for another 15, 20 minutes. Is, is that OK? I got to go. I'm sorry. You gotta, I like do. right now. I have, well, I was going to I was going to tell you I have to sign off at three, but I didn't want to interrupt anything. <laughs> well, you can still sign off at three, but let me just. So I want to keep Lindsay and Tr and Tremaine going because this is the first time that I've really enjoyed watching these two women go at each other. I mean, you're not going. You're having a great that last conversation, conversation just for as an upside observation. Um, the last exchange, you guys, I saw two completely different conversations ha happening about two almost completely different things. Right. Um, both very important conversations and both valid. But I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm like, the volley was like one had a basketball, one had a, a soccer ball. And I was <laughs> very different. Yeah, still important. Okay. I had a conversation with my uncle about the vaccine. And what they're rolling out. Would you yourself take that vaccine? Now, my uncle has said he's a doctor in L.A. And he has said that this vaccine is different from any other vaccine because they're not actually giving you the virus. It's a, a replication of the virus, which is not what they usually do. So it's like usually they give you the flu when they give you the flu shot. And there's a small percentage of the flu shot that they give you when they do give you that. This, they will not be giving you the virus. They will be giving you an altered, I can't think of the word, form of the virus. Uh, and it's been tested on 45,000 people. A lot of people don't have that information, don't know that. And it's that's why they can say that it has a high success rate. With all this misinformation that is out here about the vaccine, what do you think would be the best way to implement that and to get people to, to use it? I'll start with you, Lindsay. Well, I, I was still thinking about the question, would I take it myself? And I think I'm the right person to take it because I'm kind of like middle age range, you know, um, and 
I, I can walk with a limp if I need to for the rest of my life or whatever it is that they're going to have. I, I know our governor was on the news today saying it's about six months out for any of these two to three uh, types. I'm not an epidemiologist. I, I'm not sure how soon that will come, but I'd sign up if they needed someone to do it, um, particularly because, you know, I don't want my mom or my grand, my mom or my husband's mom doing it, and I don't want my daughter doing it. So I, I, I'd sign up. Tremaine? So I think we're going to have to do a lot of education. Um, there's tremendous distrust, one for any government-sponsored medical treatments, uh, particularly amongst Black people. And my understanding is that the um, military government will be managing the distribution of this vaccine. I had not and, heard that. Wow. Yeah, it was on a 60 minutes thing, maybe about two, three weeks ago. And I was going to say, to me, that makes it even worse. Fewer people will want to take it. And as I said earlier in the um, broadcast, I've never even taken a flu shot. So I would be very hesitant to take a vaccine at this moment. As and an early stage or even like a year from now, would you think? I'm, to me, one year out is still early stage yep. in yep. the life of a vaccine. And knowing so, its impact. Well, that's the thing that he was saying last night to me, just for the information. It was that this is the first, this is new, though not not the vaccine, but the the way that they were able to guarantee that it is effective. Right. Um, and he said the fact that it was tested on 45,000 people is also new. But that is like, I think that's a little bit reassuring for those who have doubt that I don't hear anyone talking about. And it may reassure some. But I also think that people who, so I have a little bit of knowledge about science and you have a little bit of knowledge. You always have a lot of questions. And I think that that's the average person. So just telling somebody, oh, 45,000 people, it was tested, it was tested on 45,000. I'm like, from where? Who were they? Were any black people in that? Were any black women in it? Were any middle-aged black women in it? Yeah, they were you know, mostly like, wealthy. I don't know who, who, who was tested. Yeah. And we've seen that the tests that do not include uh, mixed demographics in their test, um, their testing groups usually have some kind of outcomes later on that we need to deal with later. So I just say it's important for us to share that information. And I think we need to do a an effective education program on it. But I think that there are going to be lots of questions and a lot of hesitation. And if the military is really the entity that's going to be doing the distribution, so According to 60 Minutes, they will be doing distribution and tracking. If they're able to do that, I think that that raises the level of distrust amongst a lot of Americans. Oh, yeah. Wow. You guys, look at you guys had a kumbaya moment on that vaccine. There. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> Zawadi, what, what about you? Um, I'm like the main. I've never had a flu shot. And um, as far as I know, I've never had the flu. But... And and I will if if it's voluntary, I will not want to take the vaccine. I would rather deal with my health um, in the most natural, organic. Because what you're describing is 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 a synthetic. Um, right. Synth that's exactly what I was trying to get the word. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that if you want to make my skin crawl, talk about synthetic anything. So I know. Um, I know. If it's my preference, I will probably deal with it more on a sort of like natural herbal roots, just taking care of myself uh, manner. If it's something that um, is mandated, I'm not going to fight too hard. And the reason why, 
my husband brought up a good point the other day. He was like, because we were talking about older folks having to deal with the mumps, the measles, some of them black plague. Tuberculosis, all that stuff. All that stuff. And they had, they've lost siblings in their childhood in the, in the thirties and forties because of it. And it was routine to lose a sibling or two over some of these um, diseases back then. Now it would be devastating, but back then it was, it was not a big, big, huge, huge deal. And he pointed out, he's like, do you know why we don't have that happening anymore? And I said, why? He's like, vaccines. He's like, when you were five years old, you had a round of like six vaccinations that kept you from getting polio. Da, 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 da. So my husband's totally vaccine pro, pro vaccine. Or like the HPV uh, the, the shot or whatever that young women are getting so they don't get cervical cancer later. I mean, there's all these things that that are, try, are, are trying yeah, to preventative. And just, and just if I could share real fast, my doctor, my surgeon, you know, for breast cancer, this is the problem um, in the black community. It's so it's because of the mistrust. They can't get trials, enough trials right. for women of color for breast cancer, which makes it even more difficult for them to get studies and information. So it's such a catch. Tw- it's like, we don't trust them. We, and so we don't do the trials, but she's like, I absolutely, she said trials, I have to say are, they're positive. They have positive results. They take care of it. At any point you can step out of the trial, but because they don't, we don't trust them. We don't do them and they don't have information. So well, I mean, I think it's pretty illuminating. I wasn't even thinking about it from this perspective. So it was amazing to hear, you know, you're, you're like, Oh, look at the village. <laughs> look at that, that idiot woman who's going to be the first to take it. You know, it's it's helpful to hear because that means you really need credible people to be leading the educational rollout of this, because otherwise it's going to be more of the same that no one trusts it. And it actually doesn't help reduce the pandemic. Right. That seems to be the operative word. Trust. Yeah, that's that's what's destroying lives during this pandemic. There's lack of trust. That should be a book. Yes. That's that's a good point. I mean, that seems so obvious, but you're right, Marina. Well, I mean, I, I'm kind of brilliant. I don't know I, if you know yeah, you've known me. I, I mean, how long it. have you known me? Sometimes I mean, I Zawadi's known me since like I was like 18 or whatever. But it's like I, I do act like an airhead, but a lot of times I'll my common sense just, you know, it comes through, man. It's not that common. Ow. <laughs> yes. Oh, before I get up, I want to mention i believe tremaine went to ufc didn't you yes oh wow we're chicago girls me and marina university of chicago yes she went to university of chicago i i I, uh, lived on 50th and woodlawn at one point and i went to northwestern for graduate school but me she and i both went to u of i for undergrad so we always love to make that chicago connection yeah (laughs) yeah it's like that is the thing the trust yep even like the communication that's going on behind, if they just were more transparent about what they were doing behind the building and had the conversation with me, I would have more trust about what Here's we're- what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Here's what's going to happen next. All like simple stuff. So Lindsay, when you talk about Manhattan Borough President, you yeah. can use that, you know. If you yes, need. I'm going to. You know, <laughs> you you've, just, you've just gotten yourself a job. <laughs> communication. <laughs> Let me ask you guys this question. This is what I- I know this is a heavy way to go out. It's not really, but this is gonna be fun for me. I can tell. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not. I. I. I just. I had this conversation with a friend who's not that bright. I mean, we were t- kind of talking about it earlier with defunding the police. Would you say that saying defunding the police is is not a good title? Would you change it? So I'm gonna say, being here in Brooklyn, that it's definitely not a good. It's not a good tagline for us as 
Democrats, as we were talking about people running for office and being able to make sure that we effectively communicate what we're talking about. Right. I think it's a great headline. I don't think it gets to the crux of the problem. And in Brooklyn, we lost the congressional seat as part of that because of that. Really? And we almost lost you the seat. You think the Max, yeah, the Max Rose piece? And yeah, we definitely did. People were like, you want to defund the police, you're against the police. And if anybody's having a real conversation about what the concerns are for people who are saying defund the police, it's largely not a dismantling of the police. It's not hate for the police, but they need a new tagline that's more demonstrative of what they're talking about that allows people to understand really what the concerns are. I don't think that's getting them ahead. And I think it's causing divisiveness. And I think that in this recent election, that language was um, advertised across the country. And we have to remember, a lot of people voted for Trump. Biden may have won, but a lot of people came 70 out 70 million. Yeah. A lot of people. I call them 70 million ignorant folks. And they may be, but that messaging was what they used to speak to them. Do you think that was more prevalent than the socialist kind of like this conversation around? Because I I I did a lot of phone banking. They're like, I'm not voting for Biden. He's a socialist. I was like, that is a fascinating. Yeah, where'd they get that? I I think that that's also part of it. That's why I said, I think we've got to move. That's why to me, I think really it's about us talking to each other more like actual in-depth conversation versus highlights because we have too many people that are taking the sound bites and transporting, they're rebroadcasting it and they're not letting the conversation develop any further. And so it's, it's causing a huge, I think it's a huge divide in the party. I think it's a, I think that's why you end up like you, uh, you characterize the most recent race as out of this most diverse pool of people, we ended up with Biden. But that's how we end up with Biden all the time because we are causing division. And so in a division like that, and nobody's really talking about it, we end up going towards what is perceived as safe. Yeah, no, I certainly think he was perceived as safe. I mean, what I don't want to get lost is like, in my very same community, there are people on both sides of the defunding issue as language, to your point, Tremaine. But I don't hear a lot of people disagreeing that a lot of the money that goes to NYPD and large police forces across the country should be put in other community services. And, you know, I think you read the newspaper in the last week, so many issues connected to lack of um, human services, mental health services has gotten us where we are today. And uh, going back to one of my passions, Tremaine, you know, the way that we deal with mental illness in this city puts police in a position that they don't want to be in, in a lot of cases too. So I was gonna say, that's what happened in the Bronx with the young man who was in a supportive housing unit. He got locked out of his um, apartment. He was ranting and raving. The, the fire department came and allowed him, they broke the lock, let him back into his apartment. Moments later, within about 20 minutes, two police officers arrived while he was in his apartment now, but the door was not locked. They pushed it open. And the man starts ranting and raving again because why are you here? They he wanted to know why are you in my apartment? He picks up a knife while he's still in his apartment and he's yelling at them and they shot and killed him. That's what I'm saying. Like when we use that narrative, people are like, oh yes, we've got to get them out of managing. But they just rehired someone, right? Didn't uh, de Blasio 
introduce a new chief or what's her name? She's black, black woman who's talking about they're changing the way they respond to mental health issues in the city. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I, I've been hearing that. Um, I don't think it's significantly enough in terms of, of changing the system. I think it's a good indicator, but not nearly enough. And I think we're going to, I think we're here on this one. Trine. I think we could, if we can sit down, there's probably a lot more agreement on what's wrong with the function and the power structure of NYPD and what needs to change. And then when you have, you know, someone like Pat Lynch speaking from the SBA for, excuse me, the PBA, Confused Small Business Services and <laughs> the acronym all the time, in a vacuum, that's extreme. And it and the response, reasonably so, is extreme. Why don't we why don't we start with how do we take billions of dollars away from the NYPD and put it into community-based organizations that can actually However, I do want you to also acknowledge that the people that were in the city council that did that, that removed money from the budget and put it into other things this cycle, were pretty much blasted um, when they did the the budget. They were being blasted because they wanted, they didn't say let's defund. They said we're going to move X number of dollars or whatever. But I think the bigger issue around that is that it wasn't really defunding. It was actually taking away overtime hours, which is really not something that is under the purview of actually doing this. So it was it was window dressing uh, in an attempt to look like real substantive change. And I think that, as I understand it, is what people were really angry about because yet again, people demanding change. So help me understand, because I thought, so they did reduce the number of hours and they stopped. I think they didn't bring in a new class of hires and those monies were redirected to services that city council decided were more human services and housing. Isn't that directly what we were, or if we're talking about it, isn't that really what we want? We want to see that movement. My understanding was that a lot of these overtime hours, you can't proactively actually change. Overtime hours don't actually change the substance. Saying you're not going to do them, first of all, isn't reality. It doesn't mean it's actually not going to happen. It doesn't redirect programmatically to something else. And as I understand, a lot of the programmatic changes that were contemplated under this budget just housed the same operation still in essence over overseen by the NYPD somewhere else and that it was an accounting change more than anything else and that's the impression that I received and I wouldn't have supported that if we want to have a real conversation around accountability around reviewing of police records around real systemic not just canceling one class which in different economic times happened already before. I mean, this is talking about something much bigger than that, right? I think that's where people got really frustrated because it was billed as real substantive change. But in reality, it was like basic P&L accounting that I had seen in business school. Well, I do want to, if I could just, I mean, you guys are talking really intense now. I mean, I, I do know, like, I was like, oh, this is good. But I, I had um, one of the, just the most amazing woman, Diane Ladker from Chicago. She does kids off the block. She took kids off the street. And when I asked her about defunding the police, because she's a community activist, she took, she went from just one kid knocking on her door who's on her block, who she took care of to now like 300 kids that she takes care of. She did a memorial 
that shows the 800 kids that were murdered on the south side of Chicago. She did a memorial for them that's visual, um, that is very effective um, to change some kids' life around. So when they see that, they, they go, I need to do something different. When I asked her about defunding the police, her response was, I just, I want to know where that money goes. And I, I'm not sure if I trust, here we go, the word trust again, that that money is going to come in my direction. She deals with the police because she needs the police. Right. I think that's fair. Because she deals with the, she deals with the gangs. A lot of people she's got this a- way in New York. A lot of people in Manhattan feel this way. I, I think that's a totally fair perspective to have. I guess, again, where's the transparency on where that is going? If they, you know, if we're talking about defunding the, the police and we want to move forward to knowing where that money is going. I think, where- you know, I think one of the other issues here is that uh, we have in my view, I don't know where you land on this, Tremaine, but a weak mayor, mayor who's not been able to be seen as an honest broker w- between groups because he kind of gets absorbed by other, you know, waves that that come out, wash over him. He really hasn't been able to push for any real accountability through the commissioner, push for any accountability that would give some people a sense that let's sit at the table and find a way to find a way to move forward past this. Like, I don't, I don't even know who at the current table would help lead a conversation around reallocating budget items. I think that's what people hope the speaker would do. I think that's what people hoped a lot of folks would do. And it wasn't that. Um, I think it goes back to trust, like what you were saying, Marina. I I don't think we I'm going to say that there is a budget committee in the city council. And the speaker is also part, and the mayor's office is also part of it. But the city budget is an open document. So we can always track where the dollars are going. And people can see where the monies are, where they've been allocated. And so if somebody wanted to do that part of the work, I think that that is available to them. I think that the harder part is actually seeing the spin occur. And that is where I think community distrust grow is growing for the example of what they just recently passed in their um, the most recent budget which they heralded as their message their response to the defund the police which was the shifting of some but I believed was a shifting of some of their priorities so that they can fund some of the activities they're not bringing an additional class they're trying to cap overtime those things we need to see it actually play out. And we need to actually see the dollars being spent in those those programs and also those departments where they say that the monies were being directed. But we won't know that until next year. Okay. Uh-huh. I mean, in reality. And we have groups like the SOSs and the Man's Up and all of the intervention, the violence intervention groups that look for dollars consistently. We always want to see that they're funded, but that's one of the ways that we're able to at least in our neighborhood, address gun violence on the streets, those kind of things. And I would say there are, have been some legal changes on, say, po- police records and being able to um, arrest. So some of it is that we have to wait and see how this is actually playing out. And if it addresses some of the concerns, I do think it's going to be following the money. Mm. I'll follow the money. Just send me the report. <laughs> okay, so I we, we do have to get out. I don't want to keep you guys too. I mean, I love... I love this conversation. And I think, Lindsay, I think you're on the right track with mental illness because I've been saying this. I think that Trump has been the um, mental illness uh, whisperer. A lot of 
mentally ill people. And I don't mean to be like what, you know, Hillary Clinton said that all of his, the people who believe, you know, voted for Trump are just basket of deplorables, but I kind of do think they are. (laughs) I'm, but I do think I have noticed a lot of people who I know who are mentally ill seem to be very attracted to Trump. They seem to go in his direction. And I think, I don't think he's well. I think this is going to be a topic for a while. I think we got to address it. Maybe even a better one is he's the joker to the mentally ill. He's like their joker. I think we'd be surprised how many people are mentally ill right now. And it's like all shades everywhere. I mean, the pandemic, there's there's a physical health pandemic and then there's the mental health pandemic. There are people who are getting their shit together every day. They go to the hospital, they're serving people and they've seen so much death and we're not even confronting what they're going to have to deal with or, you know, my daughter's classmates of her saying, I want to solve COVID or, you know, stuff like that. I mean, there's so many variations of this. I, my biggest gripe is we, we stigmatize all of it. I Not all, I, I should say not all mentally ill are Trump voters, but it seems like the majority of I bet the Trump about voters. equal. <laughs> I just think that the ones that voted for them, I, I put them in that basket of a different type of mentally ill. There's a lot of them here in New York City too, so. I do want to go out on this and I want to say you guys have lovely backgrounds. I don't want to be like that director in that one article who said that actor had a horrible, he was talking about his small apartment and how his TV was in there and he was very critical of that moment. And um, you guys have amazing homes. (laughs) So, um, Zawadi, tell uh, our listeners where they can find you. Okay. Uh, Zawadi Morris, publisher of BK Reader. You can find me at um, bkreader.com. And our sister site, we just launched last week, our nonprofit sister site, uh, scribe.org. That's S-C-R-I-I-B-E.org. With with friends like us, kind of going back to uh, what Marina says, we can trust each other. We can trust each other's opinion, even through this. Yes. Lindsay, uh, where can our listeners find you? They can find me on Lindsay Boylan at Twitter, Lindsay Boylan and Y on Instagram and Lindsay for New York, which is just launched today. We have a new video um, and they can find me meeting up with Tremaine for coffee very soon because we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> and in my other life, I always wanted to be a comedian and I feel like politicians and comedians are a lot. I've told you this before. I feel like politicians are people <laughs> in the same business, except one is liked and the other is kind of hated. <laughs> and, you know, I would say with friends like, uh, like you who I can have, have real conversations with and Jermaine and I are going to do a little dance later on, and then we're going to keep going with this and, you know, be friends. There's nothing we can't accomplish if we kind of just keep working on the margins of humor and uncomfortableness, which is what uh, comedy and politics do. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. That was great. Tremaine? Uh, well, I guess um, they can find me at TremaineWright.com. And I, and since we've been talking about mental health, I'm going to also invite everybody to join us every Friday at noon. We do a Take 5 breathing meditation. We started back in March, and we hope that you'll pop in. Again, then just go to TremaineWright.com. They'll be able to pop in and um, get all of the information. And I guess with friends like us, we can continue to change the world. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yes. Marina Franklin here. You guys know me. 
go to my website, marinafranklin.com. You can get the t-shirts that I have now with the new logo, working on hoodies. And uh, yeah, and you can see the new special on Colin Quinn on HBO Max. If you're lucky to have the internet or can stream it, you can see that uh, Colin Quinn and Friends parking lot comedy with friends like us. You can sit back and listen to some real dialogue on things that need to happen in our world. Thank you, ladies, so much. This has been a great conversation. Tremaine, please come back. You're welcome to come back anytime. Lindsay knows. Lindsay was like, I want to come back, which was such a compliment. Thank you. Check, Check us out. out. <laughs> Bye, Tremaine. Bye. I got this love. It's humble, sweet, Just like gold, it's so so pure, it purifies my mind and lets my spirit soar.